decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. I am your Squirrel, the host, coming to you from the ARN Studios, high atop the tallest tree in the Piney Woods. Good to have you with us. It's Friday, October 28th, 2022. The World Series starts tonight. The World Series starts tonight. Phillies and the Astros. Going to be a good one. Going to be a good one. I, I, I am not going to say who I'm pulling for because, honestly, my team got eliminated in the first round. So I really don't care. I'm just hoping for some good baseball. And it's my intention to watch as much of it as I can. <laughs> All right. Well, it is Friday, October 28th, and this is Squirrel Chatter, a podcast dedicated primarily to the public reading of scriptures and secondarily to my thoughts on various topics of today. Today is Friday, so it's Federalist Friday, and we're going to be looking at Federalist number 10 as we continue to read through the Federalist papers. And again, just to give you an idea where this is going, um, reading through all the Federalist papers, then I want to go back and go through the Constitution again with commentary. So we read through the Constitution before we started the Federalist Papers. We read through the Declaration of Independence um, and the Constitution before we started the Federalist Papers. When we're done with the Federalist Papers, we're going to go back to the Constitution and we're going to go through it again and I'm going to comment on it. And then we're going to look at the amendments to the Constitution, beginning with the Bill of Rights and then all the way through. So we're not in any hurry to, to make our way through these. Essentially, we're doing a you know, high school government class. That's the, that's the goal of Federalist Fridays. And, uh, and I've told you about how I was inspired to do this by the fact that High schools aren't doing it anymore, and kids are not studying the founding documents. And so I wanted to go back and go through them and teach through them. And so for right now, we're just reading through the Federalist Papers, and then when we're done reading through them, we're going to go back and we will study the Constitution and talk about why it says what it says and what it means by what it says and why it's important and how it's supposed to function in the government, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's where we're headed with this, just to give you that idea. So today is going to be Federalist Paper number 10. Um, and we are reading our way through the entire Bible in the Legacy Standard Bible Translation. And we are reading today Ezekiel 13 through 15, Psalm 136, and John 5. And before we get started, I want to remind you that Squirrel Chatter is a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community. You can head on over to christianpodcastcommunity.org, check out all the great curated podcasts that are over there. You are sure to find something worth listening to. Um, there's a lot of good podcasts over there. All right. Let us begin, as is our practice. Darby the hamster is making noise. What is she doing? She's eating a biscuit. Hearing that crunch, crunch sound as she's munching on a biscuit. And I'm sipping coffee. All right, let's begin, as is our practice, with the prayer of confession from the 1552 Book of Common Prayer. 
Almighty and most merciful Father. We have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare thou them, O God, which confess their faults. Restore thou them that are penitent, according to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life, to the glory of thy holy name. Amen. And now our prayer for the reading of the word. Blessed Lord, who hast caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Now Ezekiel chapter 13. Then the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who prophesy, and say to those who prophesy from their own heart, Hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says Lord Yahweh, Woe to the wicked, foolish prophets who are walking after their own spirit and have seen nothing. O Israel, your prophets have been like foxes among waste places. You have not gone up, into the, bre- into the breaches, nor did you build the wall around the house of Israel to stand in the, in the battle on the day of Yahweh. They behold worthlessness and lying div- divination who are saying Yahweh declares when Yahweh has not sent them. Yet they wait for the establishing of their word. Did you not see a worthless vision and speak a lying divination when you said Yahweh declares, but it is not I who have spoken? Therefore, thus says Lord Yahweh, Because you have spoken worthlessness and beheld a lie, therefore behold, I am against you, declares Lord Yahweh. So my hand will be against the prophets who see worthless visions and utter lying divinations. They will not be in the council of my people, nor will they be written down in the register of the house of Israel, nor will they enter the land of Israel, that you may know that I am Lord Yahweh. It is definitely because they have misled my people by saying peace when there is no peace. And when anyone builds a wall, behold, they plaster it over with whitewash. So tell those who plaster it over with whitewash that it will fall. A flooding rain will come, and you, O hailstones, will fall, and a stormy wind will break out. Now behold, the wall will fall. Will it then not be said to you, where is the plaster with which you plastered it? Therefore, thus says Lord Yahweh, I will make a stormy wind break out of my wrath. There will also be in my anger a flooding rain and hailstones to consume it in wrath. So I will pull down the wall which you have plastered over with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation is laid bare and it will fall and you will be consumed in its midst and you will know that I am Yahweh. Thus I will spend my wrath on the wall and on those who have plastered it over with whitewash, and I will say to you, the wall is gone and its plasterers are gone. The prophets of Israel who prophesy to Jerusalem and who see visions of peace for her when there is no peace, declares Yahweh. 
Now as for you, son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people who are prophesying from their own heart. Prophesy against them. And say, thus says Lord Yahweh, Woe to the women who saw magic bands on all wrists, who sew magic bands on all wrists, and make veils for the heads of persons of every stature to hunt down souls. Will you hunt down my people's souls but preserve your own souls? For handfuls of barley and fragments of bread you have profaned me to my people to put to death souls that should not die and to keep other souls alive who should not live by your lying to my people who listen to lies. Therefore, thus says Lord Yahweh, Behold, I am against your magic bands by which you hunt souls there as birds, and I will tear them from your arms, and I will let their souls go, the very souls whom you hunt as birds. I will also tear off your veils and deliver my people from your hands, and they will no longer be in your hands to be hunted. And you will know that I am Yahweh, because you disheartened the righteous with falsehood when I did not cause him grief, but have strengthened the hands of the wicked not to turn from his evil way and preserve his life. Therefore, you women will no longer see worthless visions or practice divination, and I will deliver my people out of your hand. Thus you will know that I am Yahweh. Chapter 14 Then some elders of Israel came to me and sat down before me. And the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Should I be inquired by them at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them. Thus says Lord Yahweh, Any man of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity and then comes to the prophet. I, Yahweh, will be brought to him, give him an answer in light of it, in light of the multitude of his idols, in order to seize the house of Israel by their heart, those who are estranged from me through all their idols. Therefore says to the house, say to the house of Israel, Thus says Lord Yahweh, Turn back and turn away from your idols, and turn your faces away from your abominations. For anyone of the house of Israel, or of the sojourners who sojourn in Israel, who separates himself from me, sets up his idols in his heart, puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity, and then comes to the prophet to inquire of me for himself, I, Yahweh, will be brought to answer him in my own person. I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb, and I will cut him off from among my people, so you will know that I am Yahweh. But if the prophet is enticed to speak a word, it is I, Yahweh, who have enticed that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people Israel. They will bear the punishment of their iniquity, as the iniquity of the inquirer is, so the iniquity of the prophet will be, in order that the house of Israel may no longer wander from me and no longer defile themselves with all their transgressions. Thus they will be my people, and I shall be their God, declares Lord Yahweh. Then the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness, and I stretch out my hand against it, break its staff of bread, send famine against it, and cut off from it both man and beast, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst, by their own righteousness they could only deliver themselves, declares Lord Yahweh. If I were to cause wild beasts to pass through the land, and they bereaved it of children, and it became desolate so that no one would pass through because through it because of the beasts. 
Though these three men were in its midst, as I live, declares Lord Yahweh, they could not deliver either their sons or their daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the country would become desolate. Or if I should bring a sword on that country and say, let the sword pass through the country and cut off man and beast from it, even though these three men were in its midst. As I live, declares Lord Yahweh, they could not deliver either their sons or their daughters, but they alone would be delivered. Or if I should send a plague against that country and pour out my wrath in blood on it to cut off man and beast from it, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in its midst, as I live, declares Lord Yahweh, they could not deliver either their son or their daughter. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. For thus says Lord Yahweh, How much more when I send my four calamitous judgments against Jerusalem, sword, famine, wild beasts, and plague, to cut off man and beast from it. Yet behold, survivors will be left in it who will be brought out, both sons and daughters. Behold, they are going to come forth to you, and you will see their way in actions. Then you will be comforted for the calamity which I have brought against Jerusalem, for everything which I have brought upon it. Then they will comfort you when you see their way in actions. So you will know that I have not done in vain all that I did to it, declares Lord Yahweh. Chapter 15. Then the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any wood of a branch which is among the trees of the forest? Can wood be taken from it to make anything? Or can men make a, take a peg from it on which to hang any vessel? If it has been put into the fire for fuel, and the fire has consumed both its ends, and its middle part has been charred, is it then useful for anything? Behold, while it is intact, it is not made into anything. How much less when the fire has consumed it and it is charred can it still be made into anything? Therefore, thus says Lord Yahweh, As the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so have I given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will give my face to be against them. Though they have come out of the fire, yet the fire will consume them. Then you will know that I am Yahweh when I set my face against them. Thus I will give over the land to desolation, because they have acted unfaithfully, declares Lord Yahweh. Now Psalm 136. Give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good, for his loving kindness endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his loving kindness endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his loving kindness endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his loving kindness endures forever. To him who made the heavens with skill, for his loving kindness endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his loving kindness endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his loving kindness endures forever. The sun to rule by day, for his loving kindness endures forever. The moon and stars to rule by night, for his loving kindness endures forever. To him who struck the Egyptians through their firstborn, for his loving kindness endures forever. Then brought Israel out from their midst, for his loving kindness endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his loving kindness endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his loving kindness endures forever. 
and made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his loving kindness endures forever. But he overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, for his loving kindness endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his loving kindness endures forever. To him who struck great kings, for his loving kindness endures forever. And killed mighty kings, for his loving kindness endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his loving kindness endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his loving kindness endures forever. And gave their land as an inheritance, for his loving kindness endures forever. Even an inheritance to Israel, his servant, for his loving kindness endures forever. Who remembered us in our low estate, for his loving kindness endures forever and has snatched us from our adversaries, for his loving kindness endures forever. Who gives food to all flesh, for his loving kindness endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his loving kindness endures forever. Now John chapter 5. After these things there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving... <laughs> withered. I'm going to skip the part that is not uh, in the scriptures. Uh, let me begin the chapter again. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, and withered. And a man was there who had been sick for thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been sick a long time, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And immediately the man became well and picked up his mat and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to carry your mat. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your mat and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and disclosed to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making him equal with God. Therefore Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing from himself, unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in the same manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all these all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. 
For just as the Father raised the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has lived has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing for myself. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the witness which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. But the witness I receive is not from man. But I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the witness I have is greater than the witness of John. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has borne witness about me. You have neither heard his voice at, that, at any time nor seen his form. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is these that bear witness about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father, the one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. Now the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now the collect for grace. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, almighty and everlasting God, who has safely brought us to the beginning of this day, Defend us in the same with thy mighty power, 
and grant that this day we fall into no sin, neither run into any kind of danger, but that all our doings may be ordered by thy governance to do always that is righteous in thy sight. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. Federalist Friday. As I said, we are reading Federalist 10, the title of which is The Same Subject Continued, The Union as a Safeguard Against Domestic Faction and Insurrection. This is from the New York Packet, Friday, November 23rd, 1787, and it was authored by James Madison. To the people of the state of New York, among the numerous advantages promised by a well-constructed union, none deserves to be more accurately developed than its tendency to break and control the violence of faction. The friend of popular governments never finds himself so much alarmed for their character and fate as when he contemplates their propensity to this dangerous vice. He will not fail, therefore, to set a due value on any plan which, without violating the principles to which he is attached, provides a proper cure for it. The instability, injustice, and confusion introduced into the public councils have, in truth, been the mortal disease under which popular governments have everywhere perished, as they continue to be the favorite and fruitful topics from which the adversaries to liberty derive their most specious declamations. The, the valuable improvements made by the American constitutions on the popular models, both ancient and modern, cannot certainly be too much admired, but it would be an unwarrantable partiality to contend that they have as effectually obviated the danger on this side, as was wished and expected. Complaints are everywhere heard from our most considerate and virtuous citizens, equally the friends of the public and private faith, and of public and personal liberty, that our governments are too unstable, that the public good is disregarded in the conflicts of rival parties, and that measures are too often decided not according to the rules of justice and the rights of the minor party, but by the superior force of an interested and overbearing majority. However anxiously we may wish that these, com these complaints had no foundation, the evidence of known facts will not permit us to deny that they are in some degree true. It will be found indeed on a candid review of our situation that some of the distresses under which we labor have been erroneously charged on the operation of our governments, but it will be found at the same time that other causes will not alone account for many of our heaviest misfortunes, and particularly for that prevailing and increasingly distrust of public engagements and alarm for private rights, which are echoed from one end of the continent to the other. These must be chiefly, if not wholly, effects of the unsteadiness and injustice with which a factious spirit has tainted our public administrations. By a faction, I understand a number of citizens, whether amounting to a majority or a minority of the whole, who are united and actuated by some common impulse of passion or of interest, adverse to the rights of other citizens or to the permanent and uh, aggregate interests of the community. There are two methods of curing the mischiefs of faction, the one by removing its causes, the other by controlling its effects. There are again two methods of removing causes of factions, the one by destroying the liberty which is essential to its existence, the other 
by giving to every citizen the same opinions, the same passions, and the same interests. It could never be more truly said than of the first remedy that it was worse than the disease. Liberty is to faction what air is to fire, an ailment without which it instantly expires. But it could not be less folly to abolish liberty, which is essential to political life, because it nourishes faction, than it would be to wish the annihilation of air, which is essential to animal life, because it imparts to fire its destructive agency. The second expedient is as impractical as the first would be unwise. As long as the reason of man continues fallible, and he is at liberty to exercise it, different opinions will be formed. As long as the connection subsists between his reason and his self-love, his opinions and his passions will have a reciprocal influence on each other, and the former will be objects to which the latter will attach themselves. The diversity in the faculties of men, from which the rights of property originate, is not less an insuperable obstacle to a to a uniformity of interests. The protection of these faculties is the first object of government. From the protection of different and unequal faculties of acquiring property, the possession of different degrees and kinds of property immediately results. And from the influence of these on the settlements, on the sentiments and views of the prospective proprietors, ensues a division of the society into different interests and parties. The latent causes of faction are thus sown in the nature of man, and we see them everywhere brought into different degrees of activity, according to the different circumstances of civil society. A zeal for different opinions concerning religion, concerning government, and many other points, as well as of speculation, as well as of practice, an attachment to different leaders ambitiously contending for preeminence and power, or to persons of other descriptions whose fortunes have been interested, interesting to the human passions, have in turn divided mankind into parties, inflamed them with mutual animosity, and rendered them much more disposed to vex and oppress each other than to cooperate for their common good. So strong is this propensity of mankind to fall into mutual animosities that where no substantial occasion presents itself, the most frivolous and fanciful distinctions have been sufficient to kindle their unfriendly passions and excite their most violent conflicts. But the most common and durable source of factions has been the various and unequal distribution of property. Those who hold and those who are without property have ever formed distinct interests in society. Those who, cre those who are creditors and those who are debtors, debtors, fall under a like discrimination. A landed interest, a manufacturing interest, a mercantile interest, a moneyed interest, with many lesser interests, grow up of necessity in civilized nations, and divide them into different classes, actuated by different sentiments and views. The regulation of these various and interfering interests forms the principal task of modern legislation, and involves the spirit of party and faction in the necessary and ordinary operations of the government. No man is allowed to be a judge in his own cause, because his interest would certainly bias his judgment, and, not improbably, corrupt his integrity. With equal, nay, with greater reason, a body of men are unfit 
to be both judges and parties at the same time. Yet what are many of the most important acts of legislation but so many judicial determinations? Not indeed concerning the rights of a single person, but concerning the rights of large bodies of citizens. And what are the different classes of legislatures but advocates and parties to the causes which they determine? Is a law proposed concerning private debts? It is a question to which the creditors are parties on one side and the debtors on the other. Justice ought to hold the balance between them. Yet the parties are and must be themselves the judges. And the most numerous party, or in other words, the most powerful faction, must be expected to prevail. Shall domestic manufacturers be encouraged and in what degree by restrictions on foreign manufacturers? are questions which would be different, differently decided by the landed and manufacturing classes and probably by neither with a sole regard to justice and the public good. The apportionment of taxes on the various descriptions of property is an act which seems to require the most exact impartiality. Yet there is perhaps no legislative act in which greater opportunity and temptation are given to a predominant party to trample on the rules of justice. Every shilling with which they overburden the inferior number is a shilling saved to their own pockets. It is in vain to say that enlightened statesmen will be able to adjust these clashing interests and render them all subservient to the public good. Enlightened statesmen will not always be at the helm, nor in many cases can such an adjustment be made at all without taking into view, into view indirect and remote considerations which will rarely prevail over the immediate interests which one party may find in disregarding the rights of another or the good of the whole. Then the in inference to which we are brought is that the causes of faction cannot be removed and that relief is only to be sought in the means of controlling its effects. If a faction consists of less than a majority, relief is supplied by the Republican principle, which enables the majority to defeat its sinister views by regular vote. It may clog the administration, it may convulse the society, but it will be unable to execute and mask its violence under the forms of the Constitution. When a majority is included in a faction, the form of popular government, on the other hand, enables it to sacrifice to its ruling passions or interests both the public good and the rights of other citizens. To secure the public good and private rights against the danger of such a faction, and at the same time, to preserve the spirit and form of popular government, is then the great object to which our inquiries are directed. Let me add that it is the great desideratum by which this form of government can be rescued from the opprobrium under which it has so long labored, and be recommended to the esteem and adoption of mankind. By what means is this object attainable? Evidently, by one of two only. Either the existence of the same passion or interest in a majority at the same time must be prevented, or the majority, having such coexistent passion or interest, must be rendered by their number and local situation, unable to concert and carry into effect schemes of oppression. If the impulse and the opportunity be suffered to coincide, we will know that neither moral nor religious motives can be relied on as an adequate control. 
They are not found to be such in the injustice and violence of individuals and lose their efficacy in proportion to the number combined together, that is, in proportion as their efficacy becomes needful. From this view of the subject, it may be concluded that a pure democracy, by which I mean a society consisting of a small number of citizens who assemble and administer the government in person, can admit of no cure for the mischiefs of a faction. A common passion or interest will, in almost every case, be felt by a majority of the whole. A communication and concert, concert result from the form of government itself, and there is nothing to check the inducements to sacrifice the weaker party or an obnoxious individual. Hence, it is that such democracies have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention, have ever been found incompatible with personal security or the rights of property, and have in general been as short in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths. Theoretic politicians who have patronized this species of government have erroneously supposed that by reducing mankind to a perfect equality in their political rights, they would, at the same time, be perfectly equalized and assimilated in their possessions, their opinions, and their passions. A republic, by which I mean a government in which the scheme of representatives takes place, opens a different prospect and promises the cure for which we are seeking. Let us examine the points in which it varies from pure democracy and we shall comprehend both the nature of the cure and the efficacy which it must derive from the Union. The two great points of difference between a democracy and a republic are, first, the delegation of the government, in the latter to a small number of citizens elected by the rest, secondly, the greater number of citizens and greater sphere of country over which the latter may be extended. The effect of the first difference is, on the one hand, to refine and enlarge the public views by passing them through the medium of a chosen body of citizens whose wisdom may best discern the true interests of their country and whose patriotism and love of justice will be least likely to sacrifice it to temporary or partial considerations. Under such regulation, it may well happen that the public voice pronounced by the representatives of the people will be more, cons more co consonant than to the public good than if pronounced by the people themselves, convened for the purpose. On the other hand, the effect may be inverted. Men of factious tempers, of local prejudices, or of sinister design may, by intrigue, by corruption, or by other means, first obtain the suffrages and then betray the interests of the people. The question resulting is whether small or extensive republics are more favorable to the election of proper guardians of the public wheel, and it is clearly decided in favor of the latter by two obvious considerations. In the first place, it is to be remarked that however small the republic may be, the representatives must be raised to a certain number in order to guard against the cabals of a few, and that, however large it may be, they must be limited to a certain number in order to guard against the confusion of a multitude. Hence, the number of representatives in the two cases not being in proportion to that of the two con constituents and being proportionally greater in a small republic, it follows that if the proportion of fit characters be not less in the large than in the small republic, the former will present a greater option 
and consequently a greater probability of a fit choice. In the next place, as each representative will be chosen by a greater number of citizens in the large than in the small republic, it will be more difficult for unworthy candidates to practice with success the vicious arts by which elections are too often carried, and the suffrages of the people being more free will be more likely to center in men who possess the most attractive merit and the most diffusive and established characters. It must be, must be confessed that in this, as in most other cases, there is a mean on both sides of which inconveniences will be found to lie. By enlarging too much the number of electors, you render the representatives too little acquainted with all their local circumstances and lesser interests, as by reducing it too much, you render him unduly, atta unduly attached to these and too little fit to comprehend and pursue great and national objects. The federal constitution forms a happy combination in this respect, the great and aggregate interests being referred to the national, the local in particular to the state legislatures. The other point of difference is the greater number of citizens and extent of territory which may be brought into the compass of Republican than of democratic government. And the, it is this circumstance, principally, which renders factious combinations less to be dreaded in the former than in the latter. The smaller the society, the fewer probably will be the distinct parties and interests composing it. The fewer the distinct parties and interests, the more frequently will a majority be found of the same party, and the smaller the number of individuals composing a majority and the smaller the compass within which they are placed, the more easily will, their concert and will they concert and execute their plans of oppression. Extend the sphere, and you take in a greater variety of parties and interests. You make it less probable that a majority of the whole will have a common motive to invade the rights of other citizens, or, if such a common motive exists, it will be more difficult for all who feel it to discover their own strength, and to act in unison with each other. Besides other impediments, it may be remarked that, where there is a consciousness of unjust or dishonorable purposes, communication is always checked by distrust in proportion to the number whose concurrence is necessary. Hence, it clearly appears that the same advantage which a Republican has over a democracy in controlling the effects of faction is enjoyed by a large over a small republic, is enjoyed by the union over the states composing it. Does the advantage consist in the substitution of representatives whose enlightened views and virtuous sentiments render them superior to local prejudices and schemes of injustice? It will not be denied that the representation of the union will be most likely to possess those requisite endowments. Does it consist in the greater security afforded by a greater variety of parties against the event of any one party being able to outnumber and oppress the rest? In an equal degree, does the increased variety of parties comprised within the Union increase this security? Does it, in fine, consist in the greater obstacles opposed to the concert and accomplishment of the secret wishes of an unjust and interested majority? Here again, the extent of the union gives it the most palpable advantage. 
The influence of factious leaders may kindle a flame within their particular states, but will be unable to spread a general conflagration through the United States. A religious sect may degenerate into a political faction in a part of the Confederacy, but the variety of sects dispersed over the entire face of it must secure the national councils against any danger from that source. A rage for paper money, for an abolition of debts, for an equal division of property, or for any other improper or wicked project, will be less apt to pervade the whole body of the Union than a particular member of it, in the same proportion as such a malady is more likely to taint a particular country or county or district than an entire state. In the extent and improper structure of the Union, therefore, we behold a Republican remedy for the diseases most incident to Republican government. And, according to the degree of pleasure and pride we feel in being Republicans, ought to be our zeal in cherishing the spirit and supporting the character of the Federalists. Publius. All right. Well, that's Squirrel Chatter for Friday. I wish you the best of weekends. I hope you enjoy the World Series. I really hope you go to church on Sunday. And I hope to see you again on Monday. Have a great weekend. Remember to do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. And whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. We'll see you here on Monday. Take care. God bless. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster.